If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. We hope you've been enjoying the History Extra podcast and all it has to offer. Summer is the perfect time to delve deeper into the things you love. So subscribe to BBC History magazine for just £24.99 every six issues, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, you will receive a book of your choice worth up to £30. Choose from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921 by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition, or Persians, The Age of the Great Kings by Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022 offer ends on the 5th of august 2022 offer only available to uk residents please visit website for terms and conditions hello and welcome to the history extra podcast from bbc history magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the spring of 1954, a Vietnamese army defeated French colonial forces at the Battle of Diem Bien Phu. It was the culmination of a near decade-long conflict that saw the French Empire humbled by Ho Chi Minh's communist forces. In his new book, The Road to Dien Bien Phu, Professor Christopher Gosher takes a fresh look at the conf- takes a fresh look at the conflict 
and considers what set it apart from other anti-colonial struggles of the time. He spoke to Rob Attar. I think it would be helpful for our listeners to provide some backstory about Vietnam at this time. So if we could head earlier into the history, how did this area first come under French control? Well, Vietnam first emerged as an independent country, I would say in the second, third century BC, in the northern part of Vietnam today, around the Hanoi area. It was an independent country. Unfortunately, it didn't last long before the Chinese empire entered into the picture. And this northern Vietnam became part of the Chinese empire for about a thousand years. It was only in the 10th century that Vietnam recovered its independence and became an independent country from that point uh, until the 19th century. Uh, And it was at that time, as you say, Rob, uh, that the French moved into Asia along with the British, the Americans as well. Uh, This was the period when the the Europeans, the Americans, and eventually the Japanese as well began to colonize Africa and Asia. So the French, uh, like the British, they wanted to get to China. They were looking for a way to China. The British had Hong Kong already. So if you like, the French looked to southern Vietnam, uh, Saigon, uh, Ho Chi Minh City today, as a way to get to China. Uh, The idea of going up the Mekong River, which leaves Saigon and goes into southern China. And so that's how the French first got interested in uh, Vietnam as a way to get to China. And so in the 1850s, uh, the French began uh, what what we have to call a colonial war. And so they attacked southern Vietnam in the 1850s. Over the course of the next 20 to 30 years, they attacked northern Vietnam, trying to get their hands on the Red River Delta, another river which goes into southern China. And to make a a long and complicated story uh, short, but I think accurate, uh, the French uh, took what we call Vietnam today, the south, the center, and the north, uh, by the late 1880s or the turn of the 20s. 20th century, uh, if you like. So it was a colonial war, uh, which lasted many years until the end of the of the of the the 19th century, uh, when the French then uh, took over Vietnam and made it part of what they're going to call Indochina, French Indochina. Uh, They would add to Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And what kind of rule did the French impose on Indochina and specifically Vietnam? A combination of administrative, colonial administrative methods were used uh, in Indochina, in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. I would say there's two in particular. One was a protectorate where they left uh, the monarchies, the local monarchs uh, in Vietnam, uh, in Laos and Cambodia uh, intact and ruled through them. So that's an indirect administration or the protectorate. And the other is they had a direct administration similar to what they would do in Algeria in Northern Africa. And the French themselves would rule. And this was the case really in Southern Vietnam about which I spoke a moment ago, which they first took over in the 1850s, 1860s as well. And that the French administered as a colony. Was there much resistance to French colonial rule in Vietnam? I think that's an important point, and I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, from the beginning, and I would say until the end, uh, in, in 1954, when the French were finally forced to leave, there was resistance. Uh, this resistance started in the late 19th century. Uh, some Vietnamese would collaborate with the French to build French Indochina, but many would resist. Uh, So you have uh, a number of uh, individuals who would rally the Vietnamese people in different parts of Vietnam against the French. Uh, So you have 
I would say, a first generation in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who would fight to recover uh, their independence by rallying around the, the monarch, hoping that the monarch would turn on the French uh, and, 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 and lead the people uh, to, uh, to establish a new independent state. A little bit later, I would say in the 1920s, there's a new generation, a second generation, uh, who, who are much more nationalist-minded. Uh, uh, so they're less concerned about the monarch and they're more concerned about creating an independent country, which could be, for example, uh, a republic, uh, an independent republic, uh, similar to what other nationalists in Asia and in Africa were calling for and, and elsewhere across the, the world, for that matter. Uh, and then others look to, to communism. Uh, and this is where perhaps uh, the, one of the most famous nationalists would enter the picture, and that's Ho Chi Minh. Uh, and if it, Ho Chi Minh, I think, is important. And if you don't mind, I might say a word about him, because I think for our listeners, it's it's important, is that he had one foot in this older generation, so to speak, and the other foot in this newer generation. Uh, he was born in the 18, early 1890s. Uh, so he grew up in a traditional Vietnam that had been lost. But at the same time, he had a French education. He spoke French and he would travel. And so he would leave Vietnam in 1911. He would go to France. He would travel to Great Britain. He would travel even briefly to New York, where he would discover uh, uh, all sorts of new ideas, uh, meet new people, meet uh, other nationalists who were uh, circulating in London and in Paris. Uh, and he would discover, of course, republicanism. He would discover nationalism. And what is very interesting after World War One, he would discover communism. And for Ho Chi Minh, the communist road to, to power, the communist road to liberation, the communist road, if you like, to, to modernization uh, really attracted him. So he would uh, join. He would become a communist in France. He would travel to Moscow. He became really a globetrotter. He's uh, he's a revolutionary globetrotter like almost none other. Uh, you know, Mao Zedong remained the great leader, well, the leader of China. <laughs> he would remain in, in China. But Ho Chi Minh traveled uh, from 1911 until 1941 uh, outside of Vietnam. So he would travel from France. He would travel to the Soviet Union. And I think what's important, he would return to southern China in the late 1920s. And it's there that he would begin to organize a revolutionary movement, a nationalist movement, of course, but also a communist movement. And what might be interesting for your listeners, too, is that Ho Chi Minh created the, the Vietnamese or the Indo-Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong uh, before he would move it back uh, to Vietnam uh, in the 1930s, uh, working with other Vietnamese. So, it's a long answer to your, your very important question about resisting. Uh, there's a long tradition of resistance, uh, nationalist, Republican resistance as well. And then there's this communist nationalist who is Ho Chi Minh, who would uh, play an extremely important role, as I'm sure we'll, we'll discover as we move along. Now, World War II is pivotal to this struggle, isn't it, as it was elsewhere um, in the European empires. What impact did the war have on French Indochina? Crucial. <laughs> in one word, uh, I agree with you entirely. Uh, World War II had a very important uh, impact on the, the course of events uh, in French Indochina and the war that would follow. World War II, more than World War I, was truly a global conflagration. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, some historians even argue uh, that it was really in Asia that the two, uh, how would I put it, the two sides of World War II, the European side that begins in 1939 and the Asian side that begins really in China in 1937, they connect. They connect uh, when uh, the Japanese, who wanted to create their own empire, attack the Americans, and then they will 
overthrow uh, a number of colonial powers in Southeast Asia, the Dutch in Indonesia, the British, of course, as your listeners know, in Singapore, Malaysia, and Burma, uh, and eventually they would overthrow the French uh, in Indochina. So this world war really overturned colonial empires. And then, of course, at the end of World War II, the Japanese would lose their own empire that they tried to build uh, since the 1930s, even before that. Uh, They would be defeated in August of 1945. And so you have a power vacuum uh, that emerges uh, in, in August of 1945. And it's into this power vacuum that our Ho Chi Minh is going to step. He was in southern China. He crosses the border in 1941. He creates this nationalist movement directed by the Communist Party, which is called the Viet Minh. And the Viet Minh will allow Ho Chi Minh to take power in this vacuum created by World War II, created by what the Japanese themselves did by overthrowing the European colonial powers in Southeast Asia, including the French in early 1945. And then the Japanese lose their own empire by their own defeat. Uh, And this allows Ho Chi Minh to step in. And on the 2nd of September, 1945, he creates uh, a new independent Vietnam for the first time since the 19th century. And it's called the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Many people call it the Viet Minh, but it's, it's it's an independent nation state, which is which is born again. And this is the Vietnam, which Ho Chi Minh and his entourage uh, are going to defend uh, against the French for the next 10 years. So, so what is the French perspective at this point? They've been defeated in World War II. The Japanese have taken over, but now Japan are defeated and France wants to regain this empire, don't they? They do. That's correct. I might just add another word. You know, World War II in Indochina was particularly complicated. I would say that the French, it's true because, as as your listeners know, the French were defeated in 1940 in Europe. Uh, of course, Charles de Gaulle will go to London. He will lead the resistance uh, for the Free French. Uh, but inside France, uh, it's, it's the Vichy government that takes over. And the Vichy government is going to collaborate with the Axis. And the Axis, of course, is Nazi Germany, and it's Japan as well. So this gives rise to a very complicated situation in Indochina where the French actually collaborate with the Japanese between 1940 and March of 1945. When the Japanese overthrow Vichy, which Vichy no longer exists by 1945 because France has been liberated by the Allies as well. This is a complicated story, but what it means for France is that when Charles de Gaulle comes to power, uh, in 1944 in, in, in France, and then in 1945, he wants his empire back. France has been humiliated uh, at the global level. France has been humiliated in particular in Indochina. Uh, for de Gaulle, for Charles de Gaulle, it's extremely important that he gets the empire back. So to answer your question, Rob, which is it's a very important question, is that for the French, Charles de Gaulle in particular, decolonization is just mentally, if I can put it that way, not possible. And that's a big problem because for Ho Chi Minh, if I can say it again, mentally (laughs) losing independence is not a possibility. So if they cannot work things out through negotiations, it's 1945 and 46 is extremely complicated, but I'm not going to enter into those details. If those two leaders, both of them coming out of World War II, can't reconcile their 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 differences about the the future of Vietnam, then it's war. 
And that's what happens in 1946 when full-scale war breaks out in Indochina. The official date is the 19th of December, 1946. It's the beginning of the Indochina War. Technically, it even started in southern Vietnam a year earlier. So this is the war that essentially your book describes. And and in the book, you, you actually talk about two separate phases of the war that you see as being very different in the nature of the conflict. I wonder if you could describe what's different about these two. I think there's two chapters to this Indochina war, a war which begins, let's say, in 1945 and 46, and which ends with the Battle of Dien Bien Phu and the Geneva Conference uh, in 1954, about which we can speak perhaps uh, a little bit later on, if you like. So it's more or less a 10-year war. Uh, I think the key turning point is 1950, uh, when the Chinese communists, uh, they have taken power uh, in late 1949. They will assist Ho Chi Minh. So there's two chapters. The first is between 1945 and 1950, and the second chapter is between 1950 and 1954. Uh, During this first period, Ho Chi Minh is fighting uh, alone, um, without outside help, uh, very little, uh, if you like. Uh, That's the first thing which I think is important. Second thing is that he doesn't have many arms. Uh, He doesn't have modern arms. He doesn't have a modern army uh, either. So this implies, but doesn't imply, it means he's fighting a guerrilla war. He tells a story in 1946 that actually he's... uh, Vietnam is like a tiger. Uh, It attacks the large uh, French uh, elephant, uh, modern army with divisions, but it never attacks it, you know, head on. It always attacks it at night. It jumps on its back. He tells this story, uh, kind of a fable, uh, and that eventually the tiger will wear down the elephant uh, so that it finally pulls out, leaves, maybe it dies, and the Vietnamese will win. But my point here is the first part is really a guerrilla war. And so between 1945 and 1950, it's, it's the most difficult period for Ho Chi Minh and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. The second chapter is the period between 1950 and 1954. And as I said a moment ago, this is, this is a, a transformative period. Uh, and this is what distinguishes the Indochina War from, say, the Algerian War, say, from uh, uh, the Indonesian War uh, that's going on between the Dutch and the Indonesians at the, at the same time. Uh, why is that the case? First, I said it, let me just repeat it, the Chinese communists support the Vietnamese. Mao Zedong takes power in 1949, and he throws his diplomatic weight behind Ho Chi Minh. He throws his military weight behind Ho Chi Minh. Uh, so the Chinese and the Soviet Soviets recognize diplomatically the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. They provide artillery, they provide machine guns, they provide anti-aircraft weapons uh, to Ho Chi Minh's army. They help train a professional army, uh, which is going to have six, seven divisions by the end of the war. They help the Vietnamese to fight conventional battles. So I guess what I'm trying to say, Rob, to your listeners is that unlike what happens in Algeria, unlike what happens in Kenya, for example, uh, is that the Vietnamese begin to transform the tiger into an elephant. They begin to fight like an elephant. They fight conventional battles head on. In all, they're going to fight eight of them between 1950 and 1954. Of course, the most famous battle is the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, uh, which will occur during the first half uh, of 1954. So, it's, it's, it's complicated, but it's two types of warfare which interact with each other. First is just the guerrilla warfare, and then added to this guerrilla warfare from 1950 to 1954 is conventional warfare. No other 
war of decolonization ever made this transformation. For example, in Algeria or, or in Indonesia, there's no other DNB and food that occurred in the history of 20th century decolonization. It only occurred in Vietnam. And is the reason for that because uh, the Vietnamese had the support of uh, China and the Soviet Union, and essentially it's their communist ideology allowed them to tap into a vast resources that other anti-colonialists wouldn't have had. Absolutely. I think that's the first point. You're entirely right about that. Uh, if you look at Algeria, they never had a big, uh, I don't want to say that Egypt was not important for the Algerians, but Egypt was never able to provide the modern weapons, uh, the modern methods for fighting or the modern weapons for creating a new type of state capable of generating this type of modern professional force, creating a divisional army, so to speak. So that's an important point, is the creation of this rear area just to the north of Vietnam, southern China, but of course China is linked to the Soviet Union. And during the Indochina War, the Soviets and the Chinese get along just fine. There'll be problems later, but there are no problems during uh, the second half of the Indochina War. So I think that point's really important. I think a second point, you touched on it, and if you don't mind, I'll elaborate on it a little bit more, is that unlike the the nationalists fighting in Algeria, unlike the Republicans, uh, the Indonesian Republicans fighting the Dutch in Indonesia, you do have something unique in Vietnam in that Ho Chi Minh is a nationalist, but he is also a communist. And he has access to what I call in the book uh, a toolbox, a toolbox for fighting modern war on the one hand, and this is kind of crucial to my argument, creating a new type of state that's able to use uh, war in order to consolidate and generate uh, a single-party communist state. It's a bit complicated, the argument I make in the book, but I try to show that war and statecraft go together. And this is particularly the case in Vietnam from 1950 to 54. Just to maybe give you two examples. Um, the first example is that Ho Chi Minh will uh, look to Mao Zedong, who developed uh, this idea of using land reform. Uh, the idea of taking land in a time of war from uh, the landowners, the elites uh, in the countryside, and giving it to the peasant majority. This allows him to do two things uh, in China during the war against the Japanese and then in Vietnam during the war against the French. It allows you to mobilize the peasant masses, if you, if you like, so that they will support you, so that they will join the army. This Ho Chi Minh applies during the second half of the Indochina War, just as Mao Zedong had done it during the war against the Japanese and then against the, the Chinese nationalists as well. Uh, so I think that's an important thing. The second thing is that that land reform also allows the Communist Party to break the ties in the countryside, the traditional ties uh, uh, where the, uh, the landowners uh, tended to run the show in the countryside. Now the Communist Party sidelines them by force, uh, gives their land to the peasants to mobilize them. But this also allows the Communist Party to push its control down to the lower levels of society, to push that single-party state down to the lower levels so that they can mobilize more effectively and control more effectively. And that's one example, uh, that land reform, of this new type of communist warfare, what I call war communism, uh, in my book. 
A second, a second thing that they borrow from the Soviets and the Chinese is a method. It's in this toolbox again. It's called rectification. Basically, the idea is that they retrain their cadres. They retrain their officers. They retrain their civil servants. The idea is to push through in a time of war, uh, what I call a bureaucratic revolution. The idea is to take in hand the bureaucrats, the bureaucrats in the army and the bureaucrats in the state. And again, it is a question of control, but I think this is something that's been neglected in much of the scholarship. Nationalism is important, but the Communist Party is also increasing its control so that it can mobilize the population for this conventional type of warfare that they now are fighting. Again, this toolbox helps us to understand how Ho Chi Minh and his entourage were able to transform that guerrilla tiger into this very modern Vietnamese elephant that was able to bring down the French army or the French elephant, if you like, at Dien Bien Phu in 1945. Again, I repeat myself, but something which the Algerians and the Indonesians couldn't do. Again, it's not because the Algerians weren't as nationalist as the Vietnamese. They were. The Kenyans were as well. It's the type of state that's behind this warfare that I try to draw out a little bit more in my book. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But let's not forget that there was also conventional battles that were fought. Uh, for example, during the Tet Offensive, you have a very famous battle, which is called the Battle of Quezon, uh, which was, for the Americans, they were fearful that it was another DNB in food. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. 
Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So we've talked about the fact that the uh, Vietnamese had support from China and also the Soviet Union. How about on the French side? How far were they supported by other Western or colonial powers? And in fact, how far was France itself supporting the colonial forces? I think we have to go back to to 1950. Again, the Chinese communists take power in China. They throw their military and diplomatic weight behind Ho Chi Minh. This internationalizes the Indochina War. For example, until 1950, the Americans were watching what was going on, but the Americans were more concerned about what was going on in Europe. Uh, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I think that's accurate to say they were more worried about what the Soviet Union was doing in places like Germany, Czechoslovakia, uh, etc. Things change when Mao Zedong takes over China, and of course things change uh, in particular when the North Koreans, supported by the Chinese and the Soviets, invade South Korea. All of a sudden, Asia now becomes just as important as Europe. And I was talking about a global Second World War a moment ago. Well, the Cold War is becomes a very global affair as well. And the two hot wars now uh, in this global Cold War, and when I say hot war, where there's actual fighting going on, it's in Korea, the Americans uh, and, and other nations as well enter uh, South Korea to defend it. So it's, uh, it's, it's a war that's going to go on between 1950 and 1953 during the same time uh, as the Indochina War. That's the other hot war, of course, is 1950 to 54. To answer your question, the Americans throw their weight behind the French now. Before then, the Americans were saying to the French, please, please, please decolonize. Could you please decolonize like we did in the Philippines, like the Dutch are doing it? Uh, it didn't turn out that way because the French, and I try to answer the second part of your question, the French realized that they could use the Cold War to garner American support, and it worked. I won't go into the details, but the Americans supported the French diplomatically, and they supported, like the Chinese supported Ho Chi Minh, they supported the French militarily. And perhaps for your listeners, they, they should perhaps know that uh, the Americans provided napalm uh, to the French for the first time in 1950, even a little bit before. And the French used napalm against uh, Ho Chi Minh's army for the first time, well before the Americans did it. Uh, so uh, both wars, the Korean War, but the Indochina War become the two most violent wars of the Cold War. And that remains the case in Vietnam, unfortunately, until 1991. So the Second Vietnam War involving America is still known today for the brutality on, on both sides. How brutal a conflict was this first Indochina War? Very. Were the French able to muster as much uh, force and brutality as the Americans were able to do during the Vietnam War? No. But nonetheless, this was a very brutal war. Uh, this is something which is more, I'm working on it right now, to be honest, but it's something which is unknown in France. Uh, in France, it's the Algerian War, uh, which dominates, I would say, the, the public uh, discussion, whereas in America, it's the Vietnam War. So this Indochina War, about which we're speaking, is, as I argue in my book, the most brutal war of decolonization. Uh, it, 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 I don't want to get into the comparing game, but the French unleashed uh, this massive firepower, bombing, strategic bombing, napalm, 
they unleashed an economic war on the Vietnamese as well. Of course, the Vietnamese uh, communists now had uh, artillery. They had machine guns. They had anti-aircraft equipment as well. So the the brutality of the war reaches a new level, which we don't see in Algeria, we don't see in Indonesia, because, again, these are two different type of wars that are going on. This is now becoming a conventional war. So... I would invite perhaps your, your listeners, if they have the time, to take a look at the battlefield of Dien Bien Phu. It's covered with trenches. Guerrillas don't fight trench warfare. Uh, why are there trenches? We all know that trenches were created at the beginning of the 20th century with the introduction of artillery. When both sides are shooting artillery at each other, your soldiers have to dig into the ground, literally. So take a look on, on Google, and you will see that... Uh, The Vietnamese are the only ones, and the French as well, to have fought trench warfare. And as some French generals remarked, or French officers remarked after the Indian Fu, this reminded them of what some of them had seen at Verdun in France uh, during the First World War. So I guess we should talk about the Battle of Dien Bien Phu itself. This is pivotal to this story. I wonder if you could just explain to our listeners what actually happened at the battle. Right. Let me give you quickly the the context. Um, This second chapter, the second period between 1554, a brutal period. Uh, We do get to 1953, and at the international level uh, and at the French national level, things change. What happens at the international level? In 1953, Stalin dies. Early 53, Joseph Stalin, in the, the head of the Soviet Union, dies. A few months later, there's a thaw in relations at the international level, a mini detente, if you like, which allows for uh, the various uh, great powers, the U.S., the, the Soviet Union, and the Chinese, to end the Korean War. So that's one thing. This mini detente, which is symbolized by the end of the Korean War, ceasefire is signed in July of 1953. Second thing which is important is that the French want to get out. Uh, They're not winning this war. It's costing them more money. They begin to feel that if we can end the Korean War, why can't we end uh, the Indochina War as well? The other thing they're thinking about is if we can't save our Indo-Chinese empire, for heaven's sakes, let's at least hold on to North Africa. Let's at least hold on to Algeria. So the French are beginning to turn their attention towards uh, Africa, you know, and Senegal and other places as well in, in French uh, colonial Africa. So that's that's two things that are important. And the other thing is, on the Vietnamese side, there's a willingness to negotiate. There's a willingness to negotiate because of the brutality of this war. Uh, it's it's just uh, exhausting the Vietnamese, and there is pressure from the Chinese and the Soviets uh, in '53 uh, to say, "Let's try to negotiate an end game here to see if we can we can put an end to this war." So all of those things come together in late 1953, where everyone is saying, "Let's see if we can negotiate. Let's see if we can do something." In Talks that are taking, uh, that are occurring uh, in Europe, for example, in Berlin, uh, on Germany, and then in Geneva, trying to calm down the Cold War that has gotten so dangerous in Europe, but in particular uh, in Asia. So it's a very, very complicated story, but internationally and, and also on the French and Vietnamese side, there's a willingness to negotiate, to sit down at the table. Uh, for example, and in Geneva. And that's why Geneva becomes so important uh, at that time. However, and here I try to answer your question, before we negotiate, it's the classic thing. We need to score a big victory 
on the battlefield in order to get more things at the negotiating table. So what happens? We get to the end of 1953. Both the Vietnamese and the French, they begin to prepare for a big battle. I won't go into the details, but they decide on this remote valley in northwestern Vietnam. Uh, the French install their troops, 10 to 15,000 in the valley in Dien Bien Phu in northwestern Vietnam. And the Vietnamese say, that's great. We can beat them. We have the capacity to take them down. Our elephant can beat your elephant, if you like, uh, in Dien Bien Phu. It's the perfect place to do it. Uh, we have the jungles. We have the hills around this valley. So that's when the Vietnamese began to build up their troops by, I would say, March of 1954. So between late 53 and March of 1954, they have about 50,000 troops that are surrounding the valley uh, where the French are. The French are supported by their air force. Uh, they have paratroopers coming in and all of that. What happens is you have both sides are convinced that they can win. The French say, bring it on. If I can put it that way, we will crush you. Uh, and the Vietnamese say, bring it on, we will overwhelm you. The battle begins uh, in early March of 1954. It will last for about 60 days until the 7th of May, 1954, when the Vietnamese will bring down the French uh, in that valley uh, of Dien Bien Phu. And then did the Vietnamese ultimately get a relatively favorable settlement at Geneva after the battle? No. The answer to that question is no. Uh, it's a paradox. It's ironic. Uh, uh, it's something that I, I talk about in the book. I would say that on the one hand, you have something extraordinary. You have a political and a military revolution, uh, the likes of which you don't see again uh, in Algeria or in Indonesia. By that, I mean they created a war elephant that was able to bring down the French uh, army in set piece battle of a, of a World War I type uh, in 1954. And yet they were not able to unify the Vietnam to retake all of the Vietnam, which Ho Chi Minh had declared briefly independent, as I said at the outset, on the 2nd of September 1945. So a military, a political revolution, uh, quite unique in the history of decolonization in the 20th century, but they were unable to win diplomatically. And this brings in the Americans. The Americans were watching what was going on, and they didn't like what they saw. They were willing to sign a ceasefire in Korea in July of 1953, but they continued to attach increasing importance to Indochina as one of the dominoes, uh, as uh, President Eisenhower would say during the Dien Bien Phu battle, that the Americans had to defend in order to prevent the Soviet and the Chinese communists from moving into all of Southeast Asia, much like the Japanese had done in 1941. So the Americans attached great importance to defending Vietnam uh, against the expansion of communism. So my listeners, you can agree or disagree, uh, but this is what the Americans thought at the time. They attached much more importance to Indochina. So what happens? The Americans apply pressure and what comes out of the negotiations at Geneva is the division of Vietnam, like Korea before, into two halves. And this is how you get North Vietnam and South Vietnam. The Geneva Accords, the ceasefire, which is signed on the 21st of July, 1954, assigns Northern Vietnam above the 17th parallel to Ho Chi Minh and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. It assigns Southern Vietnam below that same line 
to the French, uh, who will eventually pull out in the next year or two, and their Vietnamese allies, uh, who would be led by a very famous man named Ngo Dinh Diem uh, from 1954 on. He would work with the Americans a little bit later. This is how we have two Vietnams which emerge from this Indochina war. So, Did the Vietnamese communists led by Ho Chi Minh win the Battle of the Indian Fu? Of course they did. No one can deny them that. Did they score a victory over the French and force decolonization? Yes, I think we have to say that as well. But did they achieve full victory in that they recovered all of Vietnam? No. And this lays the seeds of the war, which will resume a few years later uh, in 1959, when Ho Chi Minh and his party realized that I don't want to get into too many details, but there was a promise that was made uh, uh, in, this, in, in 1954 at Geneva that elections would be held, allowing the Vietnamese people to vote for the Vietnam that they wanted to have, either Ho Chi Minh's Vietnam or this other Vietnam, uh, a non-communist Vietnam led by Ngo Dinh Diem. Neither Ngo Dinh Diem or the Americans ever signed on to that referendum, those elections, because they wanted to create a separate South Vietnam, which they could then use to stop the dominoes from falling, if you like. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about the Second Vietnam War. I mean, that, that's a whole other podcast, obviously. But I just would be interested to know, how far did the North Vietnamese take the lessons from the First Indochina War into the Second War? I think, really, if you want to understand the Vietnam War against the Americans and their Vietnamese allies, you really have to, it's not to sell my book that I say that, but you really have to understand what the Vietnamese developed in this toolbox I talk about uh, between 1945 and 1954. Again, an excellent question. The answer is yes. They took that toolbox with them. They would fight a guerrilla war. And they would also fight a conventional war. I think sometimes we think about the Vietnam War, we always think about a guerrilla warfare. Certainly that was part of the Vietnam War. I would never say the opposite. But let's not forget that there was also conventional battles that were fought. Uh, for example, during the Tet Offensive, you have a very famous battle, which is called the Battle of Khe San, uh, which was... For the Americans, they were fearful that it was another DNB in food. That is what they would say, and that occurred in 1968. The Tet Offensive was in 1968. So I think that's a that's a very precise example that I can give you, is that it's this double warfare, guerrilla matched with conventional warfare, uh, which the Vietnamese will apply, the Vietnamese led by Ho Chi Minh and his uh, successors, will apply with a, with a vengeance against the Americans and their Vietnamese allies until they take Vietnam by force, with conventional battles in the early 1970s. How far does the modern state of Vietnam still resemble the, the state that was built up in the First Indochina War? I would say two, two parts to, to my answer. I would say, and it, and it links to what you asked just before, kind of this idea of war communism. Uh, so guerrilla warfare matched with conventional warfare. That we know from the first Indochina war. During the war against the Americans, they would also mobilize the population in order to reinforce the Communist Party's control over northern Vietnam from 1954, say, well into the 1960s. So we have that idea of war communism, that you use war and able to push through 
land reform in order to push through the communization of the state. So the Vietnamese would continue to do that after 1954. They began that in 1950. It would continue. Uh, so I think that's the first part of my answer to your, your question. They would they would do it and Vietnam would resemble, obviously it would become a communist country. Uh, and then they would apply that to the South after they won the South in 1975, after they defeated the Americans and their Vietnamese allies. They would take all of Vietnam and it would become the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. The name changes uh, in 1976. But But the second part of my answer to your question is that I don't want to go into too much detail, but as we all know, things would change in the communist world in the 1980s. Mao Zedong would die in 1976. His successor, Deng Xiaoping, would maintain a communist state, which exists to this day, of course, but there would be economic reforms, which would transform China, let's say, in a capitalist way with a communist party uh, still at the helm. And I think that remains the case in China to this day. The Vietnamese are going to do something very similar in the 1980s. They're going to shift economic gears, but they're going to maintain the Communist Party, which is in control of Vietnam to this day. So to answer your question, uh, how communist is Vietnam? Well, politically, in terms of a party that was born of war, it's still in control of Vietnam today, much like the Communist Party is in control of China today. So that's important. Economically, neither Vietnam or China resembles economically to what Marx and Lenin thought it would. That was Christopher Gosher, The Road to Dien Bien Phu, A History of the First War for Vietnam, is out now, published by Princeton University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.